Last time I was before you guys was in Tampa. I was sick last week. And so praise God for chicken soup and lots of it. <laughs> it's amazing how many people made us some chicken soup. Just so thankful for this family. Just thank you for your prayers. Um, just thankful for this church uh, and the family of God. So turn your Bibles to Acts 12. And we're going to be reading through Acts 12 this morning. The Unstoppable God and the Unstoppable Church is a title, I believe, for this message. And the pride in the fall of those who fight against God. As you know, we are in a war, a spiritual war, and it goes back actually thousands of years. In fact, so long that we look back at or look forward at Revelation 12, but really we're looking back thousands of years, even before the creation of the earth and people. It says in Revelation 12, 4, and his tail, speaking of the enemy, swept away one third of the stars, which are angels, of heaven and threw them to earth. And so as we know that Satan and the demons, one third of them, uh, what I always love about that passage is, uh, yeah, while there, there are demons and there are uh, evil in the earth, we have two-thirds of the angels and God. <laughs> and there really is, they are not co-equal, and there is not this battle of good and evil on the same playing field. It really is uneven, and God is on the winning side, and it is no match for evil or the devil in fact, in Revelation 20, verse 10, it says, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast, the false prophet, are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever, so we know how it ends. But as you know, in the, the battle continued from Revelation 4, and we have to go all the way back to Gen- Genesis 3, where the battle begins against God, against mankind And Satan, even today, of course, you know, is be tempting man to sin and to fight against God. Of course, you know, there's also an increase of persecution, not only in the world or the nations on the other side of the planet, uh, those who are in Asia and Middle East, of course, you know some of the stories, and you could read about it almost every day. Uh, The Voice of the Martyrs has new stories every day, and we could really grow weary just in prayer alone for praying for the persecuted church, but even more closer to home. Of course, many of you know, maybe even the pastor who's in Canada who's thrown in prison for simply meeting as a church. He's now in prison today, uh, and they actually said the same thing that they said to John Bunyan way back in the Puritan age in the 1600s. They said the same thing to him. They said, hey, we'll let you out of prison only if you stop preaching. He said, I, I can't do that. And so they kept him in prison, just like they did with John Bunyan. Even closer to home, the United States, there's the beginnings of persecution, whether it is at the local level of just persecution in the workplace or there's persecution uh, in your own families. When you share the gospel or on campus, even this week as we were on campus and uh, Justin happened to be preaching and there's two girls on skateboards that 
flew past and said, stop what you're doing. We don't believe in God. And we just gave it to him. Uh, and Justin was gracious and said, no, we're going to continue to do what we're doing because this is the word of God. Persecution is very real, whether it's close to home, but then also even in our nation's capital where one of the senators who are beginning to pass, trying to pass the Equality Act and basically just said this, said, the will of God is of no interest to this Senate. You see that people are fighting against God, but it's nothing new. The battle continues. But of course, you know that God calls people that fight against him fools. Psalm 14.1, the fool said in his heart, there is no God, they are corrupt. Proverbs 21.30, it says, there is no wisdom and no understanding and no counsel against the Lord. In other words, if you're fighting against God, you won't have any wisdom. You're considered foolish in his eyes. Acts 5.39, which you've read weeks ago, but if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them or else you may be found fighting against God. Alistair Begg said this, he's a pastor in Cleveland, Ohio, when the Bible speaks of fools and folly, it is not referring to mental deficiency, but moral perversity. First, we deny God's existence, and we know it follows. Then we deny life's values. We can see that even in our country today. Leaders throughout the Old Testament were tried fighting against God, but it was no match. I mean, as you go through the Old Testament story, I could go through hundreds of Old Testament stories, just the folly and the foolishness and the stupidity of fighting against God. And this is how God looks at the nations. This is how he looks at North Korea or China or many other nations whom he loves and also is, finds them to be also his enemy. This is what he says, Isaiah 40, behold, the nations are like a drop in the bucket. We look at them sometimes as giants and they can't be overcome. And how, do they, how will they be stopped? How will evil to be stopped? And he says, they're just literally a drop in a massive bucket. They are no match for God. And they are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. All the nations are as nothing before him and they are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. We need that perspective, that God is big. I remember when I was, uh, just first got saved about 20 years ago, I was an 18-year-old college student, and I remember just thinking as I was reading the Bible, and I would go outside and I would look at different things. I remember looking first at the, it's just kind of silly and trivial to some degree, but God was training me in my mind, and I would look at this massive water tower, you know, that they have. And I'm, I would look at that, like, wow, that's so big. You know, I'd be under it and be, yeah, God is bigger. And then I would think of the sky. And then I would think of the, the globe. And I think of the universe. I, I just, it would be endless. And but yet God is bigger, but yet God is bigger, but yet God is bigger. And I would think, wow, God is big. And he would begin to train me early on that God is so big. And it made my problems so small and the world's problems. And then I thought about my problems, and I thought about the world's problems, and I thought about the problems of the earth and everything in it, and I'm thinking, well, God is bigger. He created those things. 
It is important to have a big view of God. And then you look at the story in Exodus, move on from Genesis, you move into the story of Exodus and you see the, the foolishness of Pharaoh. You see that he was fighting against God and his people and you saw that every time, I mean, Moses, he, he uh, rose up Moses and he said, go and tell Pharaoh to his face that to free my people. And, and then of course there's 10 pa- plagues later and you think he'd probably get the picture. He didn't. Um, in fact, Caleb's reading through the, uh, through the background history of Exodus, and it's just profound. It's, it's just really cool how they're finding artifacts from that time period and just showing how uh, they, they had a lot of uh, caskets, uh, in, um, not caskets, but they, they had lots of ossuaries or, of, of some sort where they had little, little boys' bones in it, showing that the firstborn children of, uh, of Egypt did in fact die, and God's word is true. Um, just so profound and powerful, just one after another after another, and fools just saying that the word of God is not true, but yet it's true. Now, we don't need to look at archaeology, do we? We know that there's an internal witness called the Holy Spirit that tells us that it's true, but it certainly does help uh, to have that kind of evidence. But then you know that the 10 plagues didn't work and then they were going through the, the Red Sea and they were absolutely demolished. It's foolishness to fight against God. If that wasn't enough, then in Numbers 21, King Arad and the king of the Amorites and the king of Bashan, they all died. Everybody that fought against God perished. They didn't last. Sometimes earlier, sometimes sooner rather than later. And then the king of Ai in Joshua 8, he was hung after fighting against God. You can move on to Joshua 12, where Joshua 12, 7 through 12, he just literally wrote out a list of kings, one after another, after another, after another, after another, that perished because they fought against God. Then one of my favorite stories in 2 Kings 19, uh, the wicked queen Jezebel, do you know how she died? She got knocked off a cliff and dogs ate her. King Ahab also got shot by an arrow and dogs licked his blood. Israel, not only just the, the, the kings of, you know, the, of other nations, of course we look at them and say, well, yeah, certainly if you fight against God, you're going to die, but let's look a little bit closer to the kings of Israel in Judah. They opposed God, and what happened to them? They were hauled off to Assyria and Babylon. You can't win when you fight against God. You'll never win. Leaders in the New Testament, moving forward, I don't want to give you a whole history, although it would be fun to just walk through the Old Testament to show the utter foolishness of fighting against a holy God. But in the New Testament, Herod's family is a great example Herod fought against God, oh, the whole family, Herod the Great, which is called the King of the Jews. Many of you guys know as you look at Matthew 2, what he did to the many of the children of Israel. He was uh, so paranoid that he actually, before you know the story of, of in Bethlehem, I mean, he just wiped out kids two and under. But not only that, but he murdered one of his wives and three sons because he was paranoid of them taking the throne. In fact, Caesar said it would be better to be King Herod's pig than to be their son, 
to be his son. He was ruthless. He was so scared, so uh, uh, you know, worried about people taking his position. He killed everybody around. And then God ultimately took care of him. And then his son, Antipas, wasn't any better. He married half-brother Philip, and some of you guys can probably fill in the blank. He was the one that killed John the Baptist. And then Herod Agrippa II, Paul stood before him, condemned Paul, began to move on to meet Caesar in Rome, and then ultimately his death. But Herod Agrippa I, which we meet in this story, and I want to read the first few verses of chapter 12. Let's look at Acts 12, 1 through 4. Now about the time Herod, which is Herod Agrippa I, the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. And when he saw it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now it was during the days of the unleavened bread when he seized him and he had put him in prison, delivering him to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him before the people, ultimately to kill him. But in, in, at four years old, he actually, King Agrippa was hauled off to Rome. In fact, he was uh, raised by Caesars. He was uh, raised up in royalty. And then as he grew a little bit older, uh, the Caesar Tiberius ended up putting him in prison because he'd gotten at some level of debt. But when Tiberius died, uh, he was then given Palestine and under Gaius, which is, he didn't last long as a Caesar. But during that time, they were friends. And he said, hey, look, let's get this guy out of prison. Tiberius is dead. Let's put him in charge. And then Claudius, the next Caesar, uh, gave him Judea and Samaria, ultimately really giving him full reign and control over the whole country of Israel. And he needed the Jewish support. And this is important to understand this in the background a little bit, why he was doing what he was doing. He needed to gain Jewish support because uh, of all the trouble that he had uh, with Rome. He needed to gain some support. And the, one of the ways to do that is because the Jews hated Christians. You saw that through the first 11 chapters of the book of Acts. And so he realized, hey, killing James kind of won some level of notoriety. I'm, I like this popular, I like this attention. So not only just putting James in prison, realizing, hey, we'll go after the chief, Peter. We'll go after the big one. But of course, it was a, somewhat of a custom. He didn't want to, again, uh, offend the Jews. And so he, he, it just so happened, the timing and the sovereignty of God, it happened during Passover. And he said, hey, let's put this guy in prison for now. Let's wait till the, the, the city of Jerusalem floods with all the different uh, people coming from different countries. And I'll even gain more popularity because there will be so many people there and they'll be so, so pleased when after Passover, they'll be lingering and uh, around for a bit to watch what I'll do next and kill Peter. Really, Agrippa was just like every narcissistic leader that we've seen. He's all about himself. What could I do? He didn't care about Christians. He didn't care about Jews. He cared about himself. He just wanted to do what pleased man. Does it sound familiar? He just wants to do what pleased man. He was a narcissist, and it ultimately will catch up with him. But during Passover, they was put, Peter was put in prison. 
But I want to read verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church of God. They began to pray for Peter. So if you're taking notes, which I really encourage you to do, just to take notes and bring this up in discipleship and your own time with the Lord, I think it's really important because we move so fast. That's one of the feedbacks I always get is you move so fast. I could hardly keep up, but just write these passages down. Listen. I like to listen and then go back to because that does help the learning process. But Peter was basically how it worked is they had four watches through the night. So when Peter was in prison, they, he had 16 guards. Now the scriptures don't say that, but ultimately what happened, if you look back, he had 16 different guards on this guy. Talk about a maximum security prison. This is, uh, I mean, what did they think this guy was going to do? But they knew, they heard stories, right, from Acts 4 and 5. They heard this guy happens to find ways out of prison, so to avoid that, they put 16 soldiers, and uh, he, they had four at a time, four for each four watches, times four times four, 16. They had two on him, literally chained to him, and then ch- two chained right outside the gate. He was covered. There's no possible way this man is getting out of prison other than maybe perhaps an act of God. And so let's uh, read on. Verse 6. On the very night when Herod was about to bring him forward, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and the guards in front of the door were watching over the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared, and a light shone in the, shone in the, in the cell, and he struck Peter's side and woke him up, saying, Get up quickly, and his chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Gird yourself. And put on sandals. So they wore, men wore like dresses. Of course, you kind of know that. But what they did was they girded themselves up so they would get like this manly looking underwear, like puffy looking underwear in a way. And so they could, so they can run, right? So you kind of see that sometimes in the children's Bibles. You have like these guys with massive quadriceps, you know, and like big quads. And then it's like big, huge underwear, like a diaper thing. And then they start running. So which is important to maybe not know about the underwear, but that they needed to gird himself because, look, you may have to run. We're leaving prison, Peter, but he was a little groggy. He just wasn't really quite awake, realizing what in the world is happening to me. So gird yourself up, put on your sandals, and he did. He said to him, wrap up your cloak around you and follow me. It was cold out. And when he went out and continued to follow and he did not know what was being done by, an, by, by the angel was real. He didn't know. I mean, he thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to an iron gate that leads to the city, which opened for, <laughs> opened for them by itself. Can you imagine that? Talk about eerie. It's like, this like iron gate opening, which it took many men to open up. So the fact that this thing just opened up by itself was a miracle. And they went out. And went along one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people were expecting. Now he realized that then, not when the shackles fell off, not when the angel told him to gird himself up, but really, you know, when he was finally out looking, like, oh, it must have been God. (laughs) And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, he was called Mark, which we'll find out later who, a little bit who he is, where many were gathered together and were praying. 
And when he knocked at the door of the gate, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice because of her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in, announced that Peter was standing in front of the gate. (laughs) Crazy. The Bible's funny, isn't it? It's very entertaining. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. They kept saying, oh, it's his angel. Now, a little background. They, the Jewish thought is they really believed that every person had an angel aside to them. Sort of like what the Catholics believe in, in some sense, that everyone has a guardian angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened the door, they saw him and were amazed. It's like they realized, you know, prayers do get answered. It's, they were praying all night long for him. <laughs> But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had led him out of prison. And he said, report these things to James and the brethren. This is the half-brother of Jesus, who then wrote the book of James, or the letter of James, and was a part of being the head at the Jerusalem council in uh, Acts 15. Then he, and then he left and went to another place. And now when, they, when day came, there was no small disturbance among the soldiers as to what could have become of Peter? When Herod had searched for him and had not found him, he examined the guards and ordered that they be led away to execution. And then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and was spending time there. You know, as I look at this passage, you know, you, you can't help, there's a lot going on, right? There's prayer, there's persecution, there's the power of God. There's a lot that's happening. But really what I see probably more than anything here is just the absolute foolishness and when people think that they can actually stop the church. You know, and I think that this is even more relevant probably than ever before. It always is relevant because this has always happened in the church, but even now today, in the 21st century today, 2021, we can see the foolishness of it. You know, could I just say that even the pastor in Canada do you know how many people are listening to his sermons now? The church is doubled. You cannot stop the church of God. We win. I love it. Number one, God's power displayed in persecution. God's power displayed in persecution. You know, we could be kids. I, when I even preach, I, I'm like, what is God going to say? <laughs> What's going to come out of my mouth? You know, it's, 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 it's an adventure. It's like as we're even going on campus and preaching the gospel two by two or, or on the mic or what, however the strategy, it's like, what's going to come out of our mouth? What's God going to do today? Even as you talk to your family or friends, um, even in discipleship, you just go in, you're saying, well, I, I love this person. I want to disciple this person. I want to see what God does, not what I'm going to do. God's power is always displayed in persecution, always. The church cannot and will not be stopped. It is utterly impossible. R.C. Sproul says this, the church is the most important organization in the world. Do you believe that? You know, many say this, they, they say that, you know, you can't die on every hill. This is a hill to die on. 
that God has called the church to meet. He's commanded it. You can see that directly or indirectly. The only reason why people say stuff like that is because of fear. In the target, this go on with Sproul's quote, it is the target of every demonic, hostile attack in the universe. Jesus personally guaranteed that the gates of hell will never prevail against the church. But listen, however, he has made no guarantee that the gates of hell would not be unleashed against it. End quote. I love what Vadi Bachman says, suffering is common for all. However, persecution, which is a form of suffering, can be avoided. All you have to do is compromise. Right? How did the church respond during persecution? Just say it. How did they respond? Prayer. That's the first point. Prayer. We've got to pray. I'm sorry, 1A. (laughs) 1A. They prayed. No. Acts Acts 4.23, when they had been released... They went to their own companions and reported all to the chief priests and elders. This is the first imprisonment. And said to them, and when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God. That was the first thing they did with one accord and said, Oh Lord, it is you who made the heavens and the earth and the sea. They wanted to see how big God was. They wanted to remind themselves how big God was. Because I'm telling you, if you look just at the government or the persecutor, if you look at them, they will become big in your eyes. But they needed to get their eyes off of them and onto God. And that's where the power, the fuel of faith in prayer was. He was the creator of heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David, your servant said, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. There's no difference today. People rising against God, realizing the utter folly of it. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And now, Lord, take note of their threats. We're not to be ignorant of them. We're not to ignore them somehow and say, oh, they just don't exist. Only God exists. No, of course not. And grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal. And signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with utter boldness. Boldness. We need boldness, don't we? You know, I've read this before, but in Revelation 20, it's a good reminder again that cowards don't make it to heaven. It literally says that. That should terrify every one of us. You know what persecution does? It ultimately weeds out 
people. It thins it out, thins out the church. We're seeing that today. It's thinning out the church. As I said before, with the musical chairs, it just one bites the dust, play the music again, and wipe out another chair. That's going to continue to happen and always has happened until Jesus returns. In other words, we don't get to pluck out the weeds. And ultimately, there's going to be a day of reckoning. The net will be dragged in, the good fish and the bad fish, the sheep and the goats, the righteous, the unrighteous, those who chose the narrow, those who chose the wide. It will happen. Charles Spurgeon says this about prayer. And I believe that this has got to be our first weapon. This has got to be the, not strategy, not holy huddle, not watching a video, a sermon, not psyching ourselves up, but prayer. Charles Spurgeon says, oh yes, the prayer meeting is the place to meet with the Holy Ghost. And this is the way to get his mighty power. If we would have him, we must meet in greater numbers. We must pray with greater fervency. We must watch with greater earnestness. We believe with firmer steadfastness. The prayer meeting is the appointed place for the reception of power. In other words, it's not an end in itself. It's a place where we go, yes, to meet with God. In one sense, it is an end because that's what heaven will be, communion with God. But for now on earth, it's not ultimately the end in itself because we receive the power to then preach the gospel so that they too can taste and see God. They were also utterly dependent on his power. One B. I'm just training everybody, I guess, to follow along. But they prayed with fervency, verse 5. Do you know what fervency is? They stretched the muscle to the limits. Is that your prayer life? Do you stretch it to the limit? Or do you pray just a bit and then stretch to the limit with strategy? I mean, we all do that. Whether it is our marriage or whether it is parenting or school or your job or workplace or ministry, we tend to go to the strategy first. Hey, that's not working. We get pragmatic pretty quickly. And we try to figure out, hey, what works? Don't you think the devil could get in there and find a, a strategy that does work and then you do it and has, doesn't have God on it? It won't last. And ultimately, the fruit that you do get, the supposed fruit that you do get, won't last either. That's why it's so important to stretch the muscle to its limits in every area of your life with prayer. Look at Luke twenty-two forty-four. Jesus. And being in agony, he was praying fervently. His sweat became like drops of blood. It's a medical condition for those who are under such stress and agony. They were dropping to the floor. Can you imagine blood coming through your pores? But what he was doing is he was stretching to the land. He prayed three times the same prayer. God, if you could possibly take this away and have some other way of saving the world, I mean, I'd be game. But not my will, your will be done. Alistair Begg says this, prayer is an, 
acknowledgement, prayer is an acknowledgement that our need of God's help is not partial, but total. Yet many of our church meetings have dwindled in size and influence. Ultimately, the explanation can always be traced back to spiritual warfare. If, as the hymn writer says, Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon his knees. Then we may be sure that he he and his minions or demons will be working hard to discredit the value of united prayer. He's always discrediting that. Satan has scored a great victory in getting sincere believers to waver in their conviction that prayer is necessary and powerful. He's always trying to convince us it's second class. It should be second nature. The third or fourth or fifth. Luke 18, the the parable of the widow, right? There was a widow in the city that she kept coming to him and saying, give me legal protection from my opponent. Kept knocking. For a while he was unwilling, but afterward he said to himself, even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. Do we wear out God? It's like in Isaiah 62, wear him out until he answers. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now will he not bring God's justice for his elect and cry to him, that cry to him day and night? And will he delay long over them? I'll tell you that he'll bring justice for them quickly. He will for us. He will for us. And you know, we are to cry out for justice. It is important. And they did that in the book of Acts. They did that in Acts 4. They said, look, look at those who are doing evil. But then they quickly shift the focus and said, but wait, God, if we take this too far with justice, guess what happened? Look what um, uh, D.A. Carson said. He's a theologian, that uh, very well-known theologian at a Trinity Seminary up in Chicago says, do you really want nothing but total, inef- uh, total effective, instantaneous justice? Then go to hell. <laughs> Enough said, right? If you want that kind of justice, if you're demanding, oh God, get him, get him. Well, then he'll get you. So there is a balance though. And I think it is important that even if you were in Canada and you're praying for your pastor, oh God, would you see what they're doing? Oh, but would you give us boldness to preach the gospel so that more people come into the kingdom? You see the prayer? It's very important. Very important. James 5.16, the effective prayer of the righteous one can accomplish much. That's why it's important that we, yes, God does answer prayer, but he even more answers to the one who is righteous, right? Their prayers are powerful and effective. In fact, Peter said that. If you're distasteful or rude to your wife, you won't answer your prayers as husbands. Ian Bounds says this, what the church needs today is not more or better machinery, not new organizations, more novel methods, but men whom the Holy Spirit can use, men of prayer, men mighty, in prayer. D.L. Moody said this, some people think God does not like to be troubled 
with our constant coming and asking, the way to actually trouble God is to not come at all. Isn't that good? It's motivating. Corey Tenboon, who is uh, in the Netherlands, she was put in prison hiding the Nazis or hiding the Jews from the Nazis. You can go see her house in Amsterdam. When a Christian shuns fellowship with other Christians, the devil smiles. When he stops studying the Bible, the devil laughs. When he stops praying, the devil laughs for joy. What's our first strategy? Prayer. Are you motivated? I know I am. Guys, when, when we get on campus, what is the first thing that you do? I remember when we planted the church. Now, you know, it's easy when we're broken and we don't have anything and you can't, we don't have a church to show. But I remember being on the fifth level of the parking lot because that was the only spot I could find in those days. Uh, as I was driving, and I, I liked that perspective, actually, because it gave me a pretty good perspective. And I remember those days where we would literally just pray up there, uh, just looking over the campus and getting kind of a bird's-eye view and looking and saying, God, if you don't build this church, it won't happen. I, I don't know what I'm doing. Uh, we don't know what we're doing. But it was certainly daunting to go on a 70,000-member campus, second largest in the nation, to look out and say, I, I, I know we need a pipeline. I know we've got to plant among college students, but God, I, I just, I'm sick and tired of seeing people not respond or whatever. And, you know, you could try every gimmick possible to get people in the door, but I would not compromise in that way. It's got to be God who saves people. But it first starts with Prayer. The same with young adults. I remember there was only about five of them. God bless them if you're one of those five. <laughs> but as we're starting to build a young adult ministry, most of them didn't want to, most of the college did not want to transfer over. They didn't want to graduate. They were avoiding it. They were becoming 50-year seniors on purpose. And they were trying all sorts of ways to avoid that ministry. But we just said, God, would you... Again, would you move? You've got to move in power. Would you mature the young adults? Would it become attractive? Then the same work with families. And now everybody wants to be with families or trying to find their spouse and have kids. It's fantastic. <laughs> Which isn't a bad thing as long as you find the right one. But prayer, but prayer, but prayer, but prayer. <laughs> especially, especially if you're finding a spouse. For real. You know, Herod thought he was winning, but he was about to release Peter. And that usually what happens, you know, I have such confidence that God's going to release the Canadian pastor. I have such confidence that God is going to release those people. But if he doesn't, like Daniel 3, if he doesn't, God will deliver them into his arms in heaven. Again, we don't lose. We don't lose. But I love what Peter does. He doesn't only just pray, depend on him, but he rests in prison. Why do I know that? Because he was asleep. 
How many of you had been asleep? Sound asleep. Sound. Not just like waking up every 30 minutes with a rat trying to gnaw at your feet. Or the changing of the guards. Or this man just clonked out. I mean, I'm always envious of those people. Especially on mission trips. You're like, how do you do that? Oh, I slept the whole time. They're just like yawning like, oh, what a wonderful... And the overnight flight went, what? I kept getting bumped with the, the person running through the middle of the aisle. Coffee or tea, please. You know, it's like, ah, stop it. <laughs> you know, it's like the ones to England, you know, those obnoxious stewardesses going through the thing, just knocking, sorry. I can't. And I like, just had an encounter with God. Lord, I forgive them. Lord, I forgive them. Uh, but he was asleep. I was not asleep in the jungle. Uh, it was terrifying. But you know, I love what John Calvin says, for, many, for men have no taste of God's power so they are convinced of their need of it and they are immediately forget its value unless it, they are conditionally reminded, keyword, by the awareness of their own weakness. It's not a one-time thing, is it? As soon as we are done with that trial, we're soon heading into another one. And we're continually reminded of his power over and over and over again. The angel had to wake him up because he literally had no anxiety and there was no uh, sleep pill, sleeping pills during those days. And, you know, I would imagine that, you know, this passage in 1 Peter 5, 7 came with utter experience. It says, cast all your anxieties onto the Lord because what? He cares for you. He said that with power and authority because Peter actually lived that out and saw God again release him three times from prison. If that wasn't enough, their Bible happened to be the Psalm, Psalm 3, 5, and 8. I love this one. I lay down and sleep. I awoke for the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of tens of thousands of people who have set themselves against me and round about. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For you have smitten all my enemies on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. What does it mean that God shatters the teeth? It means no, they no longer can bite you. Do you ever see an old person with no teeth? You know, the, hush, honey. It's like, there's no power. I know that's kind of awkward. But they ultimately can't hurt you. They couldn't hurt Peter. I mean, 16 troops around him. Gates, chains, locks, kings. It wasn't a match for God. Psalm 4.8 says, In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, you alone, O Lord, make me lie down and dwell in safety. Peter had that. That was his Bible. He didn't have the New Testament. He didn't have the writings of Jesus. He had them in his heart. Because Jesus said, I will write them on your heart. I will put them on your heart. So if you find yourself in a prison without a Bible, it, 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 know it now. So it could get onto your heart. 
That's why we help you memorize 70 verses. We'll probably up it next year to 1,000. <laughs> what holds you to it? What holds you to it? Right yeah. Oh, yeah, that's probably the clap. Yeah, you're excited that you're in ADS now. I got it. Okay, 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 okay. I didn't understand that. I was like, wait a second. Okay, okay, I got it. Uh, fail, make a note, fail her and have her do it the next year. No. You know, I love that when Peter left the house or left the prison, he knew where to go. Where did he go? Family. He knew where to find the life group. He knew where to go. What do we say? I know it's awkward. We say, hey, if you get your jaw jacked, you know where to find us. You know where to find us. And I love that Peter, although groggy, just waking up, not knowing what's going on, kind of sleepy, kind of dazed, didn't know what he was doing. You know, there, uh, he, he went directly to the family of God. That's why it's so important to cultivate family now. So many churches today, there's going to come a sweeping persecution, but they may not have a family. That's why we started with family when, the, when it was sunny out and when the waves were calm. We put the anchor down then, not in the storm. It's too late. But you know, if we open our arms with love here in the city, they'll also know where to find us. If we become that lighthouse, if we become that church that truly does love, that truly does cultivate family, you know, I, I got a heck for this year because I beat the wolves. But it is important that in Acts 20, it says, do you understand that when I leave, that there will be wolves coming into the church? There will be. There's no doubt. There will be wolves who come in. Don't be foolish. Do you think that that the enemy will not plant tares among the wheat during, uh, uh, heart, like during a persecution time, during when the church, it, when things get rough and get hard? What do you think happened at the end of Jesus' ministry? Judas decided to beat to a different tune. Don't be so foolish to know that the enemy will plant those seeds of weeds And we need to protect the sheep in these days because we want a healthy church and an open arms for those who need it the most. Amen. Now, picking up uh, the second point, but before we get there, there was a law called the Justinian Law, which just means that the, the guard would take up the punishment of the prisoner who had gotten free. So who, if, they were to got, if they got free, then whatever the punishment was would fall on them. And so rightfully so, Herod took the soldiers, examined them, and killed them. And then took a vacation. He went down to Caesarea because he needed rest from the situation because he was utterly embarrassed. His whole plan 
unfold and, and just realize, oh shoot, I, I have no, I've, this is actually working against me. I thought I was going to be this popular guy and I got to find a way to get popular again. I got to find a way to work the crowd, so to speak. And so we pick up in verse 20. Now he was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon and with, and that's in Lebanon, by the way, and with one accord, they came to him and having won over Blastus, the king's chamberlain, or it's kind of his cabinet, and they were asking for peace because their country was fed by the king's country. And on an, I'm sorry, on an appointed day, Herod, having put his royal apparel on, took his seat at the rostrum, which is the judgment seat, and began delivering an address to them. The people kept crying out, the voice of God and not of man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God glory and he was eaten by worms and died. And so just a little background, the Israel took care of their neighboring countries. They took care of those surrounding countries. They took care of Tyre and Sodom. They took care of Lebanon with the king's country. But for some strange reason, unbeknownst to many historians, they didn't understand why he was so angry with them. But they were, and he probably ended up withholding them. So they were beginning to starve. They, were, they didn't have the goods anymore. And so Blastus, who is more of a kind one, they began to appeal to him. And he realized, uh, Herod probably realized, hey, you know, uh, maybe this would work in my favor. Maybe this is another way I can gain some sort of popularity. And so they described Josephus, and many of you guys know him. He's a historian. He's a great accompaniment to the Bible because although the Bible tells us everything we need to know, but you could look in background. Uh, it's not an inspired word of God, by the way, but it's a great history book to look at the background to find out what's kind of going around surrounding the, the, the Bible times. And this is what he says describing Herod. Herod put on a garment made wholly of silver, now, he had other garments, and usually this wasn't the case. He didn't always put this one on. But for this occasion, he uh, got into his grandfather's amphitheater that was Bill's, Herod the Great's amphitheater. He, he, would ha- he had everybody come to see him address the, all the people to try to gain, again, some lever, level of, hey, look, I'm being very kind to uh, our neighbors in the north, though I really don't care about them. But for the sake of winning the people, I've got to win them back because I utterly failed with the Peter situation, so nobody bring that up. But Herod put on this garment made wholly of silver and of a contexture truly wonderful, and came into the theater early in the morning, at which time the silver of his garment being illuminated by the fresh reflection of the sun's rays upon it, shone out after a surprising manner. The people cried out, the voice of a God and not of man. And uh, Herod neither rebuked them nor rejected their impious flattery. In other words, it was a shiny thing. So when the sun reflected, he literally looked like a God. That's why they said, it's like a God. This is God looking, and, and you know what? I've, sadly, so many of us actually look at leaders that way. Let me just give you one side note. Do not rely on the government. They want you to. We rely on God. The government is there to protect the rights of the people. That's why the government's here. Not to give you food. Not to give you health care. 
not to give you whatever. That's not what they're there for. The church is there to meet the needs of the people. Now, that's a, a direct offense against government, isn't it? They don't want you to know that. Government's always been prideful. They're always wanting to meet the needs of the people. Makes them feel good, right? But that's not what they're there for. They're there to protect the rights of the people and to protect society from criminals, not from disease. Alexander Strach says this, boasting or bragging is, sin- is a sinful preoccupation with oneself. Braggarts crave attention. They want others to praise their abilities, their knowledge, their successes, and even their sufferings for God. Because they desire recognition, they speak too highly and too much of themselves, although they may have nothing significant to say. John Piper says this, boasting is simply the outward form of the inner condition of pride. Peter also said this, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, and he may exalt you at the proper time. The angel of the Lord struck him dead. In fact, historians say they took Herod because he fell sick. He didn't die right away. A lot of people, uh, you can read about this, but there, he died five days later. And what actually really happened is kind of grotesque in a way. He died from a rupture or a cyst. From, uh, uh, the, the cyst ruptured and they were full of tapeworms. How it happened was basically the, the sheep had this disease and then gave it to the dogs in the area because then they ate the dogs and the dogs would come back to the house, gave it to man and et cetera. But the, the tapeworms would begin to form and they could form upwards to about 2 million in your liver. The angel little simply just struck him and it exploded in his stomach and five days later, ultimately, he died. I love what Mark 9.4.4 says says that hell is a place where the worm doesn't die. It keeps propagating. Not only did he live with worms literally devouring him on earth, but he went into an eternity where worms would not die. That's ultimately the folly and the foolishness of fighting against an almighty God. You can't do it. It always will come back on you. Apparently, there's some legends... Uh, that speak about uh, Herod years ago before he died that he saw this owl and, you know, they, he was terrified of the owl and they said that, you know, eventually you would, uh, next time you see an owl, uh, it, would, it, it, would, it would either, it would mean a sign of good luck and others said, no, the next time you see an owl, you'll die in five days. And apparently he saw the owl in the outside of the amphitheater and knew it was his doom. Charles Spurgeon says this, grace puts hand, his hand on the boasting mouth and shuts it once and for all. Ultimately, that's what he's going to do with every leader that doesn't give him glory. Number three, God prospers his church in the midst of persecution. The church grew 
I love this, verse 24, it says, But the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their mission, taking along with them John, who is also called Mark. And we'll pick up next week in chapter 13. But you know, even though Herod killed James, it ultimately did not frustrate the plans of God. Many of you know Tertullian said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, but Spurgeon said this also, never did the church so much prosper and so truly thrive as when she was baptized in blood. The ship of the church never sails so gloriously along as when the bloody spray of her martyrs falls on her deck. We must suffer and we must die if we are ever to conquer this world for Christ. Though Herod, I don't you think it's interesting? The chapter opens up with Peter going to prison, and the chapter closes with Herod dying. It's how it always ends. It always ends that way. John Fox, the Book of Martyrs, he wrote that princes, kings, and other rulers of the world had used all their strength and cunning against the church. Listen, but yet it continues to endure and hold its own. And of course, he has that perspective as looking through the martyrs throughout the ages. You know, I wonder if this is, as we close here, I wonder if this is what Peter ultimately thought as he was getting out of prison, as he was going back to the life group, as he then really fades into the background. This is the last time we see Peter, and now it's Paul's turn from Acts 13 on. Peter's done his job, um, he's still alive for probably another 20-some years. But we don't really hear from him. But I wonder if this is what he thought from the, the words of Jesus in Matthew 16, 18. He says, I also say to you, Peter, upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overpower it. See, Peter thought in prison, he's like, look, I'll die for this. And eventually he did. Eventually he wouldn't get out of the next prison. He would die upside down because he, he didn't think it was very much worthy to die right side up like his Lord did. Apparently his wife died the same way. But he realized that you, you cannot stop God. You cannot stop his church. God will ultimately judge those who come against it. He will do it. And we never have to worry about that. We never have to be concerned. And so as I pray for this church, I, I, I want us to, I want you guys to pray with me fervently that we would be faithful to the end. That this is a, not a look at the leaders, church. This is a, let's look at Jesus and all of us be involved. Let's be in everybody in church. That's who we are. It's who we've always been called to be. Somebody asked me the other day as I was meeting with some of the guys at Jesus, Jesus Film and crew and those guys. They said, you know, how do you send people, how do you send your whole church? I said, you know, it's simple. When Jesus said go, it meant everyone. And that's all I have. I don't have some slick uh, strategy behind that. Go means go, by the way. Uh, <laughs> simple as that.
And when we go, we're going to be persecuted. It's really simple. Really simple. The more you compromise, the less persecution there'll be. The less you compromise, the more persecution. It's just how it works. Whether that's in your workplace or whether it's in whatever you're doing. I mean, just realize that if you're actually living for the Lord, you're going to be persecuted. And it's coming. But the reality is it's coming for all of us. And I think it's going to be a wonderful adventure. I think we're made for this. We're made for this. Because as we turn the page into Acts 13, it's game time. It's time to go to the nations. It's set apart for me, Paul, and Barnabas for the nations. And they understood the cost. They had stories. And so do we. And so we need to, again, remember uh, those who are being persecuted around the world right now, pray for them. Because this is the only thing you could do. It's not like you can waltz right into North Korea. We need to pray for the nations, for those who are being persecuted. It's important to do that. And never neglect that, oh, I feel like I'm not doing anything. Just house prayer meetings throughout the week. If you're not, if you're, if your group, if you're going to life group, just say, hey, life group leaders, can we just pray all night long for the nations? Can we pray all night long for our church, for our city? I doubt they're going to say, no, we have a better plan. If they do, just tell me. No. <laughs> but it requires everybody in. This isn't a top-down deal. This is, hey, look, we, we, can, we can certainly pray for the nations. We can pray where we're at. And we need to. Because that's where boldness is going to come. And I'm not looking for three people on staff to have boldness. I'm looking for a whole church to have boldness. You can't stop that. You can stop three leaders. Why do you think they always go after the leader? Because they're like, oh, look, I know how the church works, says the government. You take out one guy, they're all done. Uh, Wrong. You take them out, the whole church explodes. Because that's how it's always worked, and it's always worked for 2,000 years, and it's still working today. Where are the the largest churches? Where's the most growth happening? Iran? In China, do you think they're free? No. I'll show you the countries with the most freedom and I'll show you the weakest churches. But I'll show you the countries that have the least freedom and I'll show you the most explosions of growth. Because that's just how it works. Whether it's the microcosm right here in the city or across the globe. So, Father, we ask you, just as they did in the book of Acts and Acts 4, that you are the creator of the heavens and the earth. You're a big God. And we have confidence through your word that you win. We have confidence that the church will not be overcome by evil, but you will overcome evil. That's just how it works. And we're so thankful for that. No matter what we find ourselves in, whether we send missionaries overseas and they find themselves in trouble, 
we find ourselves trouble on campus or even in our city, God, we don't put our hope in a government, even a Christian mayor or even a Christian leaders or wherever they might find ourselves or bosses, but we put our hope in you because leaders come and go. And that certainly with the fluctuation of leaders has nothing to do with the fluctuation of your church. And so we're asking for an alignment with your word again and that we be people of prayer, dependence, and rest, and ultimately boldness. In Jesus' name.